So the Bible is really clear that money has this potential to derail our relationship with God. But money itself isn't the problem. Money is neither good nor bad. Money's amoral, right? It can do great good and it can do great harm in our world. The power rests in our attitude about money. And many of us live as if the pursuit of wealth is the real goal in life. There was an article in Money Magazine a while back that said, not only do we consume like no other culture before us, but we pursue money like no other culture. Money has become the number one obsession for Americans. We want money, and we want the stuff it buys. Now, thousands of years before Money Magazine... King Solomon, in the Old Testament, warned us about this obsession with money. He said, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. My guess is we can read that verse this morning and feel pretty comfortable. Because I've never known anybody who would admit that they were obsessed with money, that they loved money. Right? So we hear that, we go, not me. Doesn't apply. Solomon's not talking about me. Maybe. It's become so normal in our culture for us to spend more than we make, live with little or no savings, and massive amounts of debt. Surveys tell us that almost every one of us has some purchase in our mind that we're just waiting for the right condition to make it. Yeah. Anybody here have something that comes in your mind when I said that? It's not the point to share it with the person beside you. Almost half of us acknowledge thinking that our car is a reflection of who we are as a person, but we don't love money, right? And when asked about our biggest problem in life, the most frequent answer, the number one answer is always, I don't have enough money. So we tend to think that it's, the problem isn't that we love money, it's just that we don't have enough, which is kind of the same thing. God knew that left to our own devices, money would quickly become a source of pain and frustration in our lives. We can become obsessed with money, whether we're living paycheck to paycheck, or we have a seven-figure retirement and savings portfolio. And for some of us, money can come to the place where it controls our every decision, like Stumpy and Lois. Stumpy and Lois were a couple that were married for years. Yeah, some of you are looking at each other going, do I know them? Um, they were married for years, and every year they would go to the state fair. And when they got there, inevitably, they would walk by this biplane, and Stumpy would look at Lois and go, I just want to ride in the biplane. And they'd get into this argument, and finally Lois would go, Stumpy, really? It's $100, and 100 bucks is 100 bucks." And she'd walk away, and he wouldn't get to ride in the biplane. Finally, Stumpy is 81 years old. They're at the state fair, and he goes, Look, Lois, if I don't get a ride in the biplane this year, I don't know that I'm going to make it to next year. I want a ride in the biplane. She just looked at him and said, 100 bucks is 100 bucks," and walked away. The pilot of the plane caught them and said, Look, I've heard this for years. So here's the deal. I'm going to take you both up in the airplane. And if you can stay absolutely quiet, not make a sound, not argue, not talk, the ride is free. They took him up on it. They got in the plane. The plane took off. The pilot went through all kinds of acrobatics, his best tricks in the biplane, and not 
a sound. He kept going and he did much more aggressive tactics to try to get a sound. Nothing. Nothing. So as the plane hit the ground and started taxiing in, he said back to them, he said, you know, I'm impressed. You guys didn't make a sound. And Stumpy said, well, I was tempted to say something when Lois fell out. (laughs) But a hundred bucks is a hundred bucks. You have no idea how hard I worked to get that story in this message. God knows us well, and he knows how easily money can take his place in our lives, how we can become devoted to and chase after money. And that's why God is so concerned about it. That's why Jesus taught so much on it. And there's 2,000 verses on money in the Bible, and we're going to read them all. No, we're not. We're going to look at, rather than the, the specific details, we're going to stay at a high level because I think there's three very, very important attitudes that all those verses together teach us we should have about money. The first one is we need to learn to be grateful. Living with a grateful heart is hard, especially this time of year. Over the next six weeks, we are going to be flooded with advertisements about Christmas, right? They've already started. And every single one of them seems like it's trying to tell us that whatever they're selling, whether it's a product or an experience, that is the key to our happiness this Christmas. They're done so artfully, done so creatively. The ads really grab our attention sometimes. And what they grab, too, is our focus, and they put our focus on what we don't have. They make us focus on what we want. They'll even bring us to a place where we feel like we deserve it. And that attitude tends to make us greedy, not grateful. That attitude can poison our perspective on even what we already have, make us only see its flaws and not see its value. I'll just confess for me, one of those Christmas ads that does it is the Lexus commercial, right? Nice, big, shiny car in the driveway, big red bow on top of it, Christmas morning. And they tug at our heart because what you get is the story behind it, which is this wonderful husband or this wonderful wife who surprised their spouse on Christmas morning with a car in the driveway. Or they also tell the story of, you know, the two parents who surprised their teenager with their first car on Christmas morning, and it's a brand new Lexus with a bow on it. That is never a good idea, let me just say. Buy him a beater, because that Lexus will be a beater before you know it. What happens to me is every time I see that ad, it eats at me just a little bit. It causes me to see everything that I have in the wrong light, including my 13-year-old Chevy Trailblazer with 125,000 miles on it, which happens to be our newest car. I see those Lexus ads enough, and I start to go, look what's wrong with my car in my head. And it makes me forget the joy that that car has brought me for the last six years by not having a car payment. It steals my gratitude for the fact that over the 10 years we've owned it, we've had very few repairs. What steals your gratitude? What pulls that out of your heart and refocuses you? My dad grew up in the heart of Appalachia, in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, and he grew up incredibly poor. 
he got one pair of shoes and two pair of pants, jeans, every year. That was what he wore to play in, to work in, to go to school in, and he got them in the fall right before school started. If the soles of the shoes wore out before the next fall, they slid cardboard in to make the shoes last. And when spring finally came, they just threw the shoes away, and he went barefoot all through the spring and the summer until he got his next pair of shoes. The jeans, before they were stylish, to get frayed at the bottom and holes in the knees, when he got those, they would just cut them off and make shorts, and that was what he wore for everything. When Dad had Christmas as a kid growing up poor, he got the same three presents every year. He got some sweets. He got typically an orange and a candy cane because sweets were just a rarity in the mountains. And then his third present was a candle, which became a toy for him over the next two or three months, burning it a little bit at a time just to make it last. There were a couple of exceptions in his childhood from 1938 to 1955 when he was living at home. A couple of exceptions at Christmas where he got to pick something out of the Sears catalog. But that was a risky call because deliveries weren't real regular in the mountains. They had to go a long ways to get the present. And so most of the time, if he chose something out of the catalog, it meant there'd be nothing under the tree at Christmas. He'd get his present sometime in mid to late January. I asked him once, we were talking about these things, and I said, so was it hard for you to grow up poor? And he just looked at me, and you could tell by the look on his face, it's the first time he'd ever had that thought. He goes, gosh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we thought of ourselves as poor. In fact, our family was a little better off than some other families, so we thought we had it pretty good. To this day, he has a profound sense of gratitude for those three simple gifts that he got every year at Christmas. Now, I'm not suggesting that those were the good old days. I'm not suggesting that those were better times and we should all live that way. I'm not suggesting that you should get your children those three gifts for Christmas. They might use that candle to burn down the tree. What I am advocating is that we can get trapped in this vicious cycle of wanting and consuming that leads us to ingratitude. When we compare ourselves to others, and that only makes us want more. Solomon, again, writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, look, bottom line, the more you have, the more you spend, right up to the limits of your income, which tells you that Solomon didn't know about Visa, MasterCard, and American Express, because we can go way beyond our income with credit limits. He says, so what's the advantage of wealth? Except perhaps to watch it as it runs through your fingers. And he was the wealthiest man alive in his day. Paul is a little more direct. Paul says two words. He says, be thankful. It's just that simple. Learn gratitude. You want to change your focus in life? Try living out those two words from Paul for one day. Be thankful for everything you see, everything you experience. When you wake up tomorrow morning, give thanks to God for the fact that you have a bed to sleep in, covers to sleep under. 
Thank God that you've got electricity so you can turn the light on and not stub your toe on that bed you just slept in. You go to the bathroom, you turn on the faucets, there's running water. You take a hot shower. You go down to a kitchen where the cabinets are full of groceries. We don't worry about our daily meals, most of us. And then you have the greatest thing in the world to ever be thankful for that morning. And that is that first cup of coffee that is fresh and warm. Try to go through your day drinking in the sights and the sounds and the smells of your day and giving thanks. Give thanks for that sunrise you get to see as you go to work instead of focusing on having to be up early. Give thanks for the car you've got no matter what shape it's in because it takes you where you need to go. Being grateful will shift our attention from what we lack to what we have and will breed only more gratitude as time goes by. Once we've got that gratitude, we can also learn to be content. It's another principle that the Bible teaches. And I think the Apostle Paul is a model for contentment. Paul, in his life before he became a Christian, was a part of the religious aristocracy. He had wealth. He had power. He had prestige. His job is the problem because he hunted down, persecuted, and killed Christians. He was a bounty hunter for all intents and purposes. And after a dramatic encounter with Jesus, he accepts Jesus into his life. He begins to follow Jesus, which means his former life is gone. He's no longer a bounty hunter, and he's no longer a part of the aristocracy with all the rights and privileges that come with that. He became this blue-collar worker. He made tents for a living to support his travels as he went around spreading the news about Jesus. It was a dramatically different life for Paul. It was a much rougher life. He writes about it and he says, I was multiple times I was left for dead after I'd been beaten within an inch of my life. I was pursued like a criminal by multiple groups who also wanted me dead. In his travels, Paul said, I've learned what it's like to be homeless, to be naked, to be cold. And I've often gone without food. That's a dramatic change in his life. And yet in the middle of all of that, he writes and says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. And learning that secret to be content in life, helps us in all of life, not just our finances. Some friends of ours, Alex and Sarah, were getting ready for a date a week ago Friday. Had the sitters lined up, had the reservations made. They hadn't been out on a date since their daughter was born months ago. First date in months. And the night took an unexpected turn. They ended up taking their oldest son, Will, to urgent care because his arm hurt. And at urgent care, they found out this date night was going to be far more expensive than they planned because his arm was broken and was going to take surgery to mend. So they took him from the urgent care to Delnor and spent the night there with him. And Alex writes in his blog and says, there's a lot of thoughts that went through his head that night. He had a lot of different feelings about what was going on. He had guilt, wondering if there wasn't something they could have done to prevent their son from breaking his arm. 
he felt incredibly sad for Will as he laid in that hospital bed in pain. And then eventually, as almost every one of us would, in that long night, his thoughts shifted to, I wonder how much this is going to cost. And why, selfishly, why did this have to happen on date night? Any other night, God. But he said he spent the night tossing and turning on that uncomfortable couch that is obligatory in every hospital room. He spent the night on that couch, and all through the night, his thoughts began to shift. And he realized, you know what? Will's arm is going to heal just fine. Tomorrow after surgery, we'll head home. And in just a few days, life will go back to normal in our house. He was laying there, and he said gratitude just swept over him because he realized insurance is going to pay for most of this, and we've got savings set aside for emergencies. I think this qualifies. His circumstances hadn't changed, but Alex's perspective had. He began to realize, he said, I looked around, I saw the hospital room, and there are a lot of people for whom this, this experience in a hospital room is every single day. My experience right now can't compare with what they've gone through. His perspective helped him to be grateful and content. And our contentment grows when we shift our perspective. When we stop comparing our life to other people that we feel like have it easier or have it better than us. When we stop comparing our life to how we thought it might go or how it used to be. When we understand that God is with us every step of our journey, no matter where that journey takes us, it leads us to contentment and gratitude. And when gratitude and contentment take hold of our heart, we can also learn what I think is probably the most important lesson. We can learn to be generous. Contrary to how most of our world lives, the Bible teaches that as followers of Jesus, we ought to live not at our level of income, but beneath it. So that we can do two things. One, we can save money. And two, we can be generous with others when we meet people who are in need. Generosity was modeled heavily in the early days of the church when it got started. Luke writes about that early church just days after it began on the day of Pentecost. And he says, all the believers were one in heart and mind, which is incredible in itself because there were more than 16 nations represented in Jerusalem on the day the church launched. Lots of languages. They didn't understand each other. By the time the dust settles here, there's about 500 people who stayed in Jerusalem just to be a part of this new church. Luke writes, they were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet apostles' feet, and distribute it to anyone who had need. Then Luke gives a very common example. He just says there was a man, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, who sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It's incredibly generous, and it wasn't 
It wasn't unusual in that early church. Here's the thing that we miss about Joseph. A Levite. According to the Old Testament, he couldn't own land. The only piece of land he could own was his burial plot. And so in all likelihood, that's what he sold. All the land he owned was that burial plot, and he sold it to be generous and help others who were in need. Generosity of that kind doesn't come out of a sense of guilt or obligation. That kind of generosity doesn't come because somebody in leadership stands up and teaches on generosity or informs us that we're all going to be generous and so we need to give. People are moved to generosity by the powerful way that God's grace impacts their life. We believe that to the core of who we are as a church. And we've experienced amazing generosity here at Westridge. I have been so moved over the last five years with our partnership with Huff Elementary and the people who live in the footprint of that school district, of that school, that elementary school. I've been moved by the way that you've given school uniforms, backpacks, coats, hats, gloves. I love the way that second service feels cheated if the boxes for food are all gone after first service. It's a generous heart. I love the way that you love these families. We serve two small villages as well, just a year into this now. Two small villages in Nicaragua, a third world country in some of the poorest conditions that you'll ever want to find. And if you weren't a part of our Wine to Water event last weekend, you missed a great time. Just a lot of fun hanging out with people, tasting some really good wine that I didn't have to pay for, which is my favorite kind of wine. But beyond the fun, you were so generous with your gifts that we not just met the $25,000 goal, we blew past it. Through that one event, we've raised $45,000 to help with this work. And while the money's incredible, the work it'll do is beyond incredible. It will enable us to begin serving that new village of San Pablo. It will enable us to bring clean water to them. It will enable us to raise the level of education and the facilities for those kids so they have a great environment to learn in and they have a better shot in this life. Beyond that generosity, over the last three years, you've given not just enough or beyond to meet our operating expenses. As a church, you've given $1.1 million to the Believe Capital campaign. And if you weren't around for the start of that or you don't know what it's about, we started that campaign for a very simple reason. We as a church felt that the amount of debt we were carrying as a church was strangling us, inhibiting our ability to do ministry and serve people in this community and beyond. And as we close out that campaign at the end of December, I am confident that it will be remembered as one of the high points of our first 20 years as a church because of how much we grew as a church and how much each of us grew individually through that generosity. And we didn't become a generous church 
because we're a wealthy church. Because we were giving way beyond budget, we had to figure out something to do with the money. We didn't get an endowment, you know, that had qualifications about it being used to serve the poor and the needy. We became a generous church just like the early church. We chose to become generous because our heart had been changed by the grace of God. I don't think anybody in the room hears those three qualities, gratitude or contentment or generosity and wants to argue. I don't want that in my life. I think every one of us would aspire to have more of that in our lives. And developing them comes back to one profound decision that we have to make. Regardless of where our savings account, regardless of where our checking account is today, we have to decide what's going to run our life, what's going to drive our life. Will it be greed or will it be grace? That single decision will guide multiple decisions you make every single day. Ultimately, it will shape your character and it will define your destiny. Because I believe that grace, once it gets a hold of us, once it moves beyond just an intellectual construct, grace changes us profoundly. It alters our priorities. It alters our perspective on this life. Grace changes how we live every single day. Once we realize how much we have been loved by God, We can't help but love others. And we just start to give and serve family, friends, neighbors, and even absolute strangers. Grace changes us and causes us to live a generous life.